Good morning, or if you're watching from somewhere else in the world, good afternoon. My name is Gordon Flake. I'm the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center. And for the purposes of this United States Study Center event today, I'm honored to serve on the board of directors of the United States Study Centers. As many of you know, the Perth US Asia Center and the United States Study Centers are sister centers. We both work closely with the American Australian Association. And today is my great honor to welcome you to a panel launching a report uh, produced by the United States Study Center, Osmond 2020, Bolstering Resilience in the Indo-Pacific. Before we proceed any further, however, uh, it is both the tradition and the practice of the Perth US Asia Center and the United States Study Center and our host institutions, the Uni University of Western Australia and uh, the University of Sydney, to acknowledge that we meet, even virtually, on the land, in the case of Western Australia, of the, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, in the case of Sydney, the Gadigal people of the Ioro Nation, uh, we pay our respect to their elders, past and present and emerging. Uh, we appreciate all of you joining us today. Uh, this is an extremely timely report. I think those of you who follow the news closely will know that while not officially confirmed, it is anticipated that next week will be the, the annual Osmin ministerial meetings. These are the two plus two meetings that take place regularly between the U.S. Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and the Australian Minister of Defense and Minister for Foreign Affairs. Um, not yet confirmed publicly, but reports in the media suggest that this may be actually uh, uniquely for this current era taking place in person. Uh, and in anticipation of that, uh, the United States Study Center team has put together a remarkable report that, that looks at policy options for Osmin after COVID-19. Um, let me now take just a moment to introduce our panel, and then I'll turn the time over to kind of the lead authors of this report. Uh, I, on the, the panel with me today, we've got Ashley Townsend, who's the Director for Foreign Policy and Defense Studies at the United States Study Center. I think you will all know Ash from his work. I was just on a, a Zoom call as part of the truncated IISS uh, Shangri-La dialogue yesterday, where they had the U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of Defense speaking, and Ash was one of the questioners whose questions did not get answered in that format going forward. Uh, we'll also be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. Jeff is, is the Director of Research at the Perth U.S. Asia Center. Uh, you will know him from his extensive work on trade, on geoeconomic issues, and on resource issues as well. We're also fortunate to have uh, Brendan Thomas Noon, who is a Senior Fellow uh, for Foreign Policy at the, at the uh, United States Study Center and Matilda Stewart, who is a research associate. Uh, I think everyone in this audience will be aware of this, but uh, Brendan uh, and Ash and, and Tilly also produced a remarkable report last year called Averting Crisis, uh, which, which you know, was, was one of the rare moments when in a think tank community you write something that kind of goes all the way to the top and gets uh, responded to by the White House, but in this case, uh, has has legs, and so just last month I I noted uh, that there was an op-ed in, in the Diplomat by two U.S. senators, Senator Jim Inhofe, Jim Inhofe, and, and Senator Cory Gardner, uh, which again not only cited but was based on the report done by the United States Studies Center. And so, in that context, um, I'm delighted to have the panel here. I welcome them here. Uh, the report you saw the slide that was just there a minute ago is available for all to read if you haven't read it already. Uh, it's on the United States Study Center website. Uh, let me just kick off, and I'm going to start by turning initially to, to Ash and then to Jeff. Um, remarkable 
time we're living through right now. In addition to, to the, the, the health impacts of COVID-19, there are obvious you know, um, economic impacts uh, and there are increasingly obvious security diplomatic impacts as well. Uh, this takes place in a time of, of remarkably uh, strained relations between the United States and China. Uh, and all of this kind of impacts directly on Australia, Australia's national strategy and national security. And so given the fact that we're a week out for Osman, your report is extremely timely. It's wonderful to have an opportunity to discuss it. Ash, I might kind of throw over to you first to kind of give us initial insights in your thinking behind the report, uh, some of its um, uh, core conclusions, and then we're gonna to go to Jeff for a discussion on the geoeconomic side. So over, over to you, Ashley. Thanks, Gordon, for that um, very kind introduction. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right. This year's Osmin is set uh, and reported to take place next week at what is um, an extremely fraught time, uh, not just for the Indo-Pacific, but for the Alliance and the way that it is seeking to address the myriad problems that are now facing the region that are accelerating in many ways across the region, in particular in the, in, in the security and geopolitical space. Um, but our motivation for writing uh, this report and for, for releasing it about, about four or five weeks ago in advance of um, uh, OSMIN in order to uh, suggest um, some policy recommendations for consideration in that process. Our motivation for that was really to think about the Indo-Pacific region that we want and the way that the Alliance can and needs to contribute to shoring that up both now, but also into the future. Uh, and the lens that we adopted for that was one of resilience. Um, from our perspective, and certainly I think I speak for my co-authors here, um, the most important um, uh, thing for Osmin to do, or for the Alliance, or for the US and Australia to do in the midst of a global pandemic is to demonstrate its value proposition and to help the region. And so before any other considerations of geopolitics and geoeconomics uh, can really make their way to the top of the agenda, the frame of reference for this year's Osmin must be about helping the region um, strengthen its health systems resilience, helping the region respond to the immediacy of the pandemic, uh, its economic fallout, its developmental and health fallout, but also to chart a sustainable path towards recovery. And I'm here, I'm paraphrasing in part DFAT's new focus on the region, pathways to recovery. Um, the, the reason for this is fairly clear. We're looking at zero economic growth in the Indo-Pacific um, this year. We're looking at around about 24 million people that are going to remain in poverty and not get lifted up by economic growth as they would have previously. We're looking also at uh, very close now to a million cases of coronavirus across the Indo-Pacific. So it's a region that is marked by diversity in, in, this, in the resilience or in the strength of institutions and domestic governance institutions and health systems, and one that the Alliance has a mandate uh, really to support. We've done so previously through um, initiatives in Osmin, such as responses to infectious diseases in the region. We've done so through the Indo-Pacific Health Security Initiatives and other fora that my colleague Tilly will talk about soon. But this needs to be front and center of the agenda. But beyond that, uh, it's equally important, although maybe of less immediate pressing crisis response um, um, urgency, it's, it's equally important to deal with the way that strategic and geopolitical tensions are accelerating in the region because of and enabled by COVID-19. And here we are talking about the way that China is taking advantage of this crisis. 
whether that be uh, in Hong Kong with the introduction of new security laws that will limit freedoms and economic activity by those in Hong Kong, whether it is at the border with India, where the standoff between the um, India and Chinese soldiers has led to fatalities in the last month and is indeed uh, strained and potentially at its most volatile position uh, in the last 60 years, whether it is in other parts of the Indo-Pacific, where in the South China Sea, where online and in cyber attacks, we are seeing China step up its what has until now been a very gradualist, incrementalist campaign to shape the regional strategic order in ways uh, that suit its interests and advantage it relative to other countries. This is the second part of the focus on resilience. The region needs the support of like-minded countries with capable militaries, capable um, uh, with capable government institutions, whether that be in cybersecurity, whether that be in terms of our value proposition in countering disinformation, in countering other forms of, um, of, of grey zone coercion in the region. The region needs capable countries like Australia, the US, uh, Japan and others to step up and take really, I think, a more direct role in supporting um, the region at the front line of Chinese coercion. So the report looks at a number of suggestions from the high end, um, where we are seeing uh, a, a growing interest in, in Australia at least, um, develop capabilities of a military kind that would weigh into high-end deterrence or whether at the low end where we're seeing a much greater focus on shaping the regional strategic order. Uh, the report talks about a number of suggestions there where this year's Osmin will be pivotal. I'll make one final point, which is that the Osmin meeting uh, next week, if indeed that's when it's held, will also be um, um, an interesting one because of the US-Australia dynamics. Um, it may well be the last Osmin of this administration, um, and it's no secret that this administration has, on a number of fronts, um, adopted policy positions that are at odds with Australia's policy positions when it comes to uh, international trade, when it comes to the role of multilateral organizations, even the role of allies and partners in the region at some level. There are many points of difference. One of those points of difference is um, the tone that we each strike um, when addressing the challenges that China presents the region. And it has been the case in recent years that the United States has, has sought to, 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 to encourage Australia to take a more direct, uh, a more verbally strident tone um, in calling out Chinese behaviour. And that has been a point of some friction because at the end of the day, Australia is resident here in the Indo-Pacific and like many regional countries, um, has to carefully manage um, uh, its language, its rhetoric, um, not just because of Chinese perceptions, but I think even more importantly, because of perceptions in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia about how we shape and talk about our policies with China and where actions are more important in many cases than rhetoric. And so that will be an issue, I think, at Osmin. We have seen some very forward-leaning commentary coming from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I think in the, in the introduction, Gordon, you mentioned uh, Secretary uh, Defence Secretary Esper last night at the IISS um, um, uh, briefing, uh, where I think, uh, importantly, he didn't take um, as strident a tone as has been customary by senior US officials recently. He sought to, I think, present a message about values that are not are rooted in ideology and democracy, but values that are rooted in international law, in freedom of action, in sovereignty. These are things that in the Indo-Pacific are important to all countries. And I think a recognition of that and a discussion about how we can sustain that, albeit speak about it differently, should also be front and center next week. Well, thank you, Ash. That's a fantastic uh, scene setting uh, for your recommendations. 
Uh, we're going to dive down in a panel discussion to some of the specific recommendations that you made. But before we do so, I want to turn to Dr. Wilson. Uh, obviously, uh, the last several months have been extremely busy on the geoeconomic trade front as well. Could you help us kind of set the scene for Osman next week, uh, again, before the actual panel discussion, please? Thanks, Gordon, and several very busy months indeed. Um, Look, in the first uh, six months of 2020, Australia has faced a number of external shocks to its trade investment relationships. And while much of our national economic debate at home has been over the domestic effects of COVID-19, business closures and things like that, um, I'd argue it's possibly these international economic shocks that in the long run might prove more substantial. Um, the first was COVID-19 itself, um, where shutdowns in many trade and investment partners interrupted a lot of global value chains. Um, and we saw many countries, including Australia, have difficulties in securing imports of some critical products. Um, and this became apparent as early as March. Following that then came the COVID-19 recession that's engendered, which has dragged on every economy around the world. Um, however, and we are seeing that that recession is weighing especially heavily on the United States, which is Australia's most investment partner and is likely to lead to reduced investments and capital flows between the two in coming months. Um, after that, we then got a sudden spike in protectionism um, as governments around the world have imposed trade restrictions to respond both to the virus and also its economic fallout. Um, initial data suggests there's already been more protectionist policies enacted in the first quarter of 2020 as all of 2019, which is itself had been a high watermark for global protectionism. Um, and from the Australian perspective, finally, we've had this new and emerging trade conflict with China in response to Australia's position on an independent international COVID-19 inquiry. Um, Australian barley, beef, education and tourism exports have already been targeted by Chinese trade sanctions. Um, and there is, as many will know, a purported Chinese hit list in distribution that outlines several more products that might also be sanctioned if relationships continue to deteriorate. Now, I think the point here is that this is the most adverse external economic environment that Australia has faced in at least a generation, potentially a century. Um, and so trade and investment two of the key drivers of Australia's world beating economic success over the last two decades are both going to fall dramatically this year. But equally worrying is not just the macroeconomic side, but that there's this strong political element, particularly around protectionism generally, and China specifically using trade sanctions as a form of gray zone coercion towards Australia. And so what Osmin is going to need to grapple with is a new global economic environment in which geoeconomic conflict is on the rise and confidence in the rules-based system is at an all-time low. Thanks. The breadth of issues that both Ash and Jeff have raised are daunting. Uh, and, and I think it really does set the, the, the context for the meetings that we anticipate will take next week. Um, uh, it also sets the context for why it's helpful to have uh, an organization like the United States Study Center put out thoughtful, specific recommendations for what we might want to do. So we're going to move now into kind of a panel discussion period. Um, uh, and I would urge those who are watching online to use the, the question and answer feature here on, on Zoom to kind of raise your questions. After an initial round or two, I'll open it up to a conversation more broadly and kind of I'll read through and pass through your questions to the panelists as well. 
but uh, Matilda, I'd like to start with you. I think um, uh, that the focus that you had on the report was really strengthening health resilience uh, and both on the security front and the economic front. Uh, Jeff and Ash have kind of set the context for that, but I wonder if you might help us better understand uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's new partnerships for recovery strategy and how that underlines the need for cooperation between uh, uh, Australian countries in our new neighborhood, uh, how that is likely to play out in the context uh, of the Osman ministerial discussions, and, and, and more importantly, how you think it should play out uh, in the Osman ministerial discussions. So over to you, Tilly. Thanks, Gordon. Um, yeah, so I, I think we're all now very familiar with the kind of devastating health and economic impacts that COVID-19 is having, um, albeit in various levels of intensity in countries all over the world. But I guess a key takeaway that I wanted to flag at the start of this discussion and that Australia, I think, has been really emphasising in the lead up to this year's Osman is that COVID-19 is, is a shared challenge for our region. As you mentioned, DFAT's new partnerships for recovery strategy and also recent speeches made by the foreign minister. Um, I'm thinking back to her speech at ANU's National Security College a couple of weeks ago, definitely reinforced this, this sentiment. So with this in mind, working with Indo-Pacific nations to sustainably recover from the pandemic should be both a humanitarian and a strategic priority for the Alliance. So far, we've seen a kind of justified focus on emergency health and humanitarian assistance as part of our immediate response. Um, but as we kind of get further along the timeline of this pandemic, I think it's also really important for both Australia and the United States to build a long-term view towards strengthening regional capacity and resilience, and that's especially in terms of health and development. There's definitely a, a great opportunity, I think, to think creatively and capitalize on kind of pre-existing tools that we already have at our, our disposal um, that were kind of in various stages of implementation before the pandemic as part of a broader effort to engage with the region. Um, so the US and Australia have both taken important steps in reforming their development financing capabilities in recent years, and that's specifically through the Australian Infrastructure Financing Facility for the Pacific and the US Development Finance Corporation. And both of these mechanisms, I think, are, are well equipped to respond to the current crisis. So the AIFFP, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, is designed to support high quality infrastructure development in the region through grant and loan financing for public and private projects. The USDFC also has a mandate to partner with the private sector to support projects that have kind of clear development outcomes and further US foreign policy objectives. And that has a stated focus on the Indo-Pacific region. So keeping with this regional focus, I think it's also important to note that Australia has an important role to play at this year's Osman, especially in ensuring that the sheer scale of assistance required all around the world, um, as well as domestic challenges in the United States, doesn't distract from America's stated prioritization of the Indo-Pacific. Accelerating US and Australian coordination on economic development and infrastructure in the region has been a focus of um, Osman meetings in previous years. But there's definitely still some barriers that exist to fully implementing this goal. The USDFC, which I just mentioned, um, was established through legislation called the Build Act in 2018, but it only had its funding officially approved by Congress late last year. And it's also inherited larger active commitments from its predecessor agency, OPIC, in Africa and Latin America than it has in our region. 
the DFC recently announced a $2 billion health and prosperity initiative um, for investments that are really meant to build global health resilience. But it's chosen to focus this initiative on Africa due to the scale of need there definitely, as well as due to the availability of staff already on the ground. In light of COVID-19, I think there's obviously scope for similar health investments to be made in the Indo-Pacific. And one option for exploration at this year's Osman could be a partnership between the US DFC and Australia's infrastructure financing facility to pursue joint water, sanitation and hygiene projects in the Pacific. Partnering to develop, um, de deliver this kind of health infrastructure rather than kind of larger scale hard infrastructure alone like ports and roads, achieves a number of objectives that support both the immediate COVID-19 response um, while it also advancing broader development outcomes in the region. So health systems in the Pacific were already under serious strain before the pandemic. The region has the lowest water coverage and second lowest sanitation coverage globally. And it's estimated that 130 million US dollars is required each year up until 2030 for PNG's Papua New Guinea's um, water and sanitation infrastructure alone. So joint US and Australian investment in this kind of infrastructure would kind of, I think, have a twofold benefit. Access is really vital for stopping the spread of COVID-19. I mean, we've heard a lot about hand hygiene and everything lately, but it also fits into broader goals of both countries to kind of center women and girls specifically in development. Women have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and are more likely to lack access to water and sanitation more generally. Um, as Ash mentioned in his opening remarks, Australia and the US have already committed to reducing the threat of infectious diseases in the Indo-Pacific at previous Osman meetings. So I think that matching infrastructure development with these kind of pre-existing health security efforts would be a way to meet regional need while also deepening bilateral cooperation in this area. I think there's also um, scope for the US and Australia to commit to a broader development agenda throughout the region with other partners like Japan. But I might leave it there though, we can come back to possibilities for trilateral cooperation if there's time in the discussion. Fantastic. Uh, as those of you who have read the report know, the overall title was Bolstering Resilience. And, and I think Tilly's made a really strong case for the need for resilience in, in the health sector in particular, but in cooperation between the United States and Australia in that sector in our shared interest and the interest of the globe more broadly. Um, I'm gonna turn now to, to, to Brendan Thomas Noon. Uh, and keeping with that theme of resilience, uh, you've done a lot of research and writing on defense industry, on, on innovation, on technology, on industrial cooperation between uh, the United States and Australia. Uh, and that seems to be an area, obviously, where the theme of resilience uh, is important as well. Uh, Australia released a new uh, defense strategy or a strategic update to, to their previous defense white paper. Uh, and that included some very specific elements uh, heavily focused on, on sovereignty. You know, uh, um, so I wonder if you might kind of play, uh, help us understand that in the context of not only the new strategic update, update in Australia, but in the need in advance of this Osmond to kind of look at how our industries might cooperate more effectively together, how we can, can build that resilience in an era where there's concern about the previous way of doing business. So over to you, Brendan. Thanks, Gordon. And uh, you're actually, you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of synergy or uh, uh, 
uh, kind of momentum, I think, with the release of the defense strategic update um, last week or the week before in this Osman. Usually at Osman's, you see one or two throwaway lines really about enhancing, uh, committing to enhance defense industrial cooperation, um, but you never really, you know, see where that leads or anything specific. I think this Osman will be a little bit different. Um, I think that there probably will be um, more dedicated in the outcome statement um, towards that. And one of the reasons is, as he pointed out, is the defense strategic update, which puts a lot of emphasis on building resilience and redundancy and new capabilities for Australia that we haven't really been um, able to do ourselves um, for quite some time or ever. Um, the one example of that is the, the commitment to develop the ability in Australia to build our own guided munitions, for instance, which is we're able to build explosives and in, in munitions in Australia, but we've never really been able to, to build the, the entire capability all the way through. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of momentum to um, building on that um, for this Osman because a lot of the IP and capability rests with American companies and with the U.S. government. And so they'll, I think there will be kind of seeking out and new areas of cooperation um, in that regard. And that uh, it, it serves a couple dual purposes. One is to uh, build redundancy for Australia's own capability in a time of conflict. Um, if, we, if there was a time of conflict, we only have so many stocks of some of these capabilities and getting those uh, ships to Australia for our forces to use would obviously take an incredibly long time across the Pacific Ocean. Um, and so that builds Australia's own, own kind of capability and sovereign sovereignty, but it also allows us in coalition sort of settings to contribute to um, the wider network and that if there are basically builds redundancy into the system that Australian production can come online for, and it's not just guided munitions, but things like sono buoys and things like that used in um, anti-submarine warfare and those types of things that can actually provide to the coalition. And these are usually things that are going to be um, used quite a bit. Um, the way I think that the Australian government's gonna try and pursue this and uh, is through the National Technology Industrial Base, which is the NTIB. Uh, Australia with the United Kingdom was brought into the NTIB in 2017. And I think uh, the reason why this year will be different as well is that for the last couple of years, there's been a, a, a learning curve on what the NTIB is actually capable of and what it actually is. I think in 2017 when we when we were brought in, there was a lot of excitement that um, things were going to change overnight and there would be all this new industrial defense industrial cooperation between the United States, uh, the UK and Australia, um, except that really it was uh, the NTIB, which was um, formulated by Senator John McCain um, in his last years in office. Um, was really a framework to, for Congress to push further reforms through. It's really this kind of building block that um, was meant to be molded for uh, further reforms to be, to be um, enacted by Congress. And, and that hasn't really happened. There's, there's a few champions in Congress who um, are interested in this and, and kind of know the value of it. Um, but there hasn't been another John McCain that's kind of really taken it up with, with uh, that, that he did in his last years in office. So um, I think there, there's limited, so the whole process is going to be very slow. I, shouldn't, I don't think we should expect to see some massive change or announcement at, at Osman necessarily, but there will be more than in the past. And that's really because, uh, like I said, a lot of the changes that, that have to happen through the NTIB have to be enacted through Congress rather than through um, the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. 
That being said, I think we probably will see those specific projects with a lot of political pressure um, behind them to get them up to kind of demonstrate that there are, we need to be working together in new ways. And I don't want to, I know Jeff will speak about this later, but the critical minerals and rare earths project that um, has, has not necessarily gotten over the finish line, but has gotten a lot further than last ones, I think was the hope. Uh, to be able to demonstrate that this is uh, the new way we can operate under these frameworks. And I'll let Jeff sort of tell the story of that, um, perhaps in his comments. Um, so whether it's it's that or something else, I think we should uh, expect to see that. And the last thing I'd say, though, is that I do hope that there are, uh, in this Osman, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that can make a big difference for defense industry cooperation between the United States and Australia. One is um, having, being able to, there's a lot of unclassified tenders that are issued by the Department of Defense and the Pentagon in the U.S. Um, that are able to be bid on by allies, but are simply not opened to um, allies because there's a lot of risk kind of, this, you know, within the defense bureaucracy. They just, even though the rules say that these things can be bid on by allies, there's this kind of inherent risk about, oh, we're not sure, so we'll just not open it up to them. Um, a lot of those kind of small changes where a lot of small and medium enterprises in Australia can bid on these projects if there is um, more of a kind of cultural training or, or training amongst defense bureaucracies that this is actually within the rules would make a big difference. Yeah, and my guess is that in the current context where there is concern about supply chains and a focus on national sovereignty, and there does seem to be some increasing bifurcation of technological systems, I think the U.S. will probably have to rely more on, on countries like Australia to do that as well, uh, as much as Australia already has. Well, thank you. Um, Ash, I'd like to kind of bring you back into the conversation again now as part of the panelists and focus more specifically on some of the recommendations that you made in the report. Um, you argued that, uh, that the alliance needs to be more proactive and responsive in responding to ch Chinese disinformation campaigns, adventurism in, in the Indo-Pacific more broadly, um, in the wake of the strategic, uh, the defense strategic update that's come out, uh, I'm curious as to what you would like to see or what you recommend uh, that this uh, this upcoming Osman ministerial focus on in in, in particular regards to the security situation in the Indo-Pacific today. Yeah, thank, thanks, Gordon. Um, there are really two points there that are linked by the common theme, which is this. Uh, the US and Australia both need, and I would argue alongside other like-minded allies and partners in the region to take a more active role in directly supporting the kind of regional order that we all want. And that is to say a kind of regional order where the rule of law where um, uh, sovereignty, where freedom of action, and where um, small and large countries can coexist peacefully and safely in defending their interests, where all of that is possible. Um, and I know that that may sound simple to say, but the key point there is about a more active contribution. I think both our defense update, as well as some of the statements coming out of Washington, some of the developments in, in the Quad in Japan and Indian policy in particular, also in Southeast Asia, all point in the right direction. Momentum is what's needed. On the disinformation side of the house, look, disinformation has not been a direct focus of Osmin in the past, certainly hasn't appeared in the Osmin public statements in the last couple of years. Um, disinformation, uh, you know, put simply, is the perpetuation of false narratives 
to create uncertainty or to prosecute some other strategic objective um, by a foreign actor, whether that be a state or non-state based actor. In this case, and in the context of COVID-19, um, many of our viewers will be aware of the way that China has used disinformation, whether that be about the origins of COVID-19, the way that it should be treated, the effectiveness or not of uh, China or European countries or other allied countries in dealing with it, the effects that that has on their capacity and so forth. China has used these narratives to advance its image internationally in a, in a fairly, in a, in a way that resembles propaganda. But beyond that, what China has done in the context of Australia and the US is, is endeavor to split our two countries from each other um, by arguing that Australia has been following the leader when it comes to Washington's response to COVID-19, which is both untrue, um, but also strategic insofar as what it endeavors to do is play on domestic, a reasonable uh, Australian domestic um, opposition to government policy on, on a range of issues. Let me give you an example. When Australia called for an international inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, which was an independent Australian policy position that our foreign minister championed, but also that had very solid bipartisan support with Labor's opposition spokesman Penny Wong also supporting it, uh, China began a multi-pronged campaign to discredit Australia as being essentially a lapdog of the United States. And it used uh, not only its state-backed media and online uh, social media presence, but also its ambassadors and consulates general here in Australia to prosecute that narrative. And as Jeff argued at the start, backed up by the threat of and then implementation of economic coercion, sanctions and leverage. Uh, it was a very coordinated campaign and certainly the most forward leaning that we've seen before. And it blended disinformation information, that is to say false narratives with, with genuine sticks when it came to economic policy. Uh, the Alliance hasn't uh, been able to deal with that as well as it could. Um, if Australia and the United States had very early on ensured that cabinet members on both sides of the Pacific, um, that senior um, uh, heads of departments, that other public facing aspects of government were all speaking, if you like, to the same tune when it came to COVID-19 and the need for an inquiry and the respective roles of Australia and the United States and others with regard to that, um, the, if you like, information space would have been cleaner and that would have made it harder for Chinese disinformation to take hold. But beyond that, it's clear that disinformation is not just an alliance problem, it's an Indo-Pacific problem. And it's encouraging to hear that DFAT is now looking to stand up a counter disinformation task force. I think that this needs to be something that is triaged, not just with the United States, but with others in the region. Osman is a good place to start for that conversation. And the, the objective really needs to be uh, uh, an initiative, a mechanism to share in real time um, the nature of the threat, to alert each other about the substance of different disinformation campaigns with a view of shining a light on those in the same way as we've done with foreign interference or we're doing with foreign interference, uh, and then to share strategies and collective action and coordinated action to respond to those in ways that will uh, take the sting out of disinformation so it won't complicate our policy on both sides of the Pacific. Uh, and look, just briefly, because um, we did touch on this at the start on the defence side of the ledger, um, I think what we've seen in the defence strategic update uh, that Australia released a couple of weeks ago, and in the series of um, policy decisions uh, and statements that both Australian and US leaders have made over the last 
you know, six to nine months with regards to deterrence, with regards to the South China Sea and supporting regional partners. We've seen a, a, a bit of a sea change from a focus on freedom of navigation operations, that is to say a very technical legal um, signaling of what is and is not acceptable in the South China Sea to a much more um, uh, full-throated awareness of the need to take a side in standing up for the kind of order that we want. And by taking a side, I don't mean on the sovereignty disputes, but I mean insofar as Australia or the United States or other countries would share real-time and actionable military intelligence with regional partners, would coordinate patrols um, and aerial aerial patrols and um, 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 maritime and coast guard patrols with Southeast Asian countries to help them better understand and respond to uh, Chinese harassment on the water, to raise the costs of Chinese harassment on the water because there would be a multinational presence there rather than just a presence of an isolated Southeast Asian country. Uh, all of these kinds of initiatives um, uh, are now being actively discussed. We've already seen Australia and the United States together uh, undertake a, um, a presence operation in the vicinity of the West Capella um, drilling ship, a Malaysian initiative in the South China Sea that um, uh, many would argue dissuaded China from continuing to harass that particular operation. These kinds of things need to be coordinated with regional partners. But what they do that is significant is that they show a more active contribution and, and, and useful form of support to regional countries at the front line of Chinese coercion. So I would hope and expect that Osmin this year um, advances down that path, because I think that that is what really lies also behind our defense strategic updates, articulation of the need to shape more actively the regional strategic environment. Well, thank you, Ash. I think you have uh, functionally answered the question that you asked Secretary Esper last night, although to be fair to him, I think he had five questions and one minute to answer them in. So I'm glad that you had uh, a chance to kind of elucidate more on those issues. They're all very important. Uh, Jeff, let me pull you back in here as well. Uh, as Brendan mentioned, there's few people in Australia, let alone the world, that, that have, uh, have done more work on critical materials. Uh, you wrote a remarkable report last year and, and led our effort in convening the annual In the Zone Conference focused on critical materials, which managed to entice down some of the leading thinkers and government officials, including White House officials from Washington. Um, in the, the time since then, there has been some movement, uh, probably not enough on, on this front, uh, but critical materials did rate a mention uh, in the defense strategic update and in particular uh, when uh, Defense Minister Linda Reynolds launched that report in WA just a couple of weeks ago. It, it had a heavy focus on critical materials. So I was wondering what you would hope would come out of this Osmond ministerial in terms of US-Australia cooperation on critical materials and whether that might extend to third countries as well. Thanks, Gordon. And I'll, look, I'll be really brief. I think a lot of this group probably knows the critical mineral story. This is products like rare earths, cobalt and lithium, um, and they're a major source of risk in the global economy. Um, at present, China holds monopolies or very close near monopolies in the production of these minerals, um, which are essential for both civilian technology, but also defence technology sectors. Um, and after China deployed the so-called rare earths weapon during a territorial dispute with Japan in 2010, there've been really credible concerns that China may withhold supply of critical minerals again particularly in the present context of escalating trade warfare. 
Um, this problem was recognised last year, and at Osmium 2019, the US and Australia agreed to cooperate on critical minerals for the first time. Um, however, what we've seen in the last 12 months since is that there hasn't been much movement on the ground. Um, and a lot of this is to do with the fact that private sector companies that build, design and execute these projects have struggled to get projects off the ground due to the extraordinarily high levels of investment risk in what is a sensitive and politically contested sector. Um, so to try and upgrade bilateral cooperation, the US and Australia should use this year's Osmin to explore ways to try and de-risk private sector entrance into this sector. Um, one mechanism would be to with issue offtakes, uh, effectively a kind of long-term purchasing agreement um, to project developers, which would help the private sector developers secure finance and stand projects up. Um, another would be to reaffirm Australia's recognition, and Brendan mentioned this, as a preferred and trusted supplier to US defence industry. Um, and I say this in light of recent concerns amongst some sections of the US Congress uh, regarding critical mineral value chains where part of the value chain falls outside the territorial US, i.e. is Australia secure? Um, I'm sure that the answer is yes. Um, finally, it's also worth thinking about um, multilateralising some of these efforts. Um, following the Arbe Morrison summit um, two Thursdays ago now, um, Australia now has critical mineral cooperation agreements with the United States, India and Japan. So Australia becomes a hub in what very much looks like a critical minerals quad. Um, given the fact that these are global value chains where different countries bring different parts to the industrial structure, um, a lot more traction would be made if Australia and US's efforts could be put in the context of our partnerships, particularly with Japan, given its technological leadership. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, we've got a number of questions from people who are, who are watching online right now that I want to get to. But beforehand, I, I did want to ask one question of the panel as a whole. Uh, and it comes with a bit of a confession. Before I moved to, to Perth six and a half years ago, I had actually never read uh, one of the joint communiques uh, that come out of these Osmond two plus two ministerial meetings. Um, I had my 30 years or 25 years in Washington, DC was very much focused on Japan and Korea. And that was the prism through which I viewed alliances. And so when I arrived here uh, in early 2014 and read through the previous Osmond ministerial uh, communique that came out, I was struck. I think there were 78 points on that one. And it outlined the tremendous cooperation that was taking place between Australia and the US, much of it sight unseen in almost every sector, right? It, it, again, from, from health to defense industry, to space, to cyber. And it was remarkable. Now, during the Trump era, these uh, joint communiques have taken a different nature. Um, it's, it's been a little bit different. But if I could ask each of you one question, uh, I don't know what format the communique will take place, uh, what will be formatted in when it comes out next week, or even if there will be one. But if you had your preference for one or maybe two key lines, statements that would be come out in paper, you know, from an Osmond ministerial next week uh, that you would like to see, what would it be? Um, so my, I might go in reverse order. I might start with you, Jeff. Um, what are you looking for? What would make you say this was a great Osmond ministerial? Uh, they agreed upon this and this was their line and then we'll work backwards. Go ahead, Jeff. 
Thanks, Gordon. I mean, I jump off from my last point on critical minerals, but not so much about that policy issue specifically, because as you said, there's a lot on the agenda. But the very last point I made on that about um, bringing in partners where this matters, a lot of the issues like critical minerals that matter for Australia and the US matter for partners, and in fact, are probably better solved when the coalition involved has different partners that bring other things to the table that augment and complement what Australia and the US has. So as a general marker, both for critical minerals, but the whole thing uh, overall, I'd really like to see an openness to treating these issues as regional issues that require bilateral concert with other partners, not, not seriously and narrowly alliance tracked. Thank you. Ash, over to you. Uh, thanks, Gordon. Um, look, uh, let me zero in on one thing specifically here. I think I'd like to see the Osman uh, joint statement uh, specifically acknowledge the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, uh, which is making its way through the US Congress and uh, which, is, which was welcomed by Secretary Esper last night, but welcome it not only from the US side of the ledger, but also argue that Australia will work towards establishing and coordinating a Pacific Deterrence Initiative of our own, uh, in part by repurposing uh, funding that sustained um, on longer, on long-standing engagements in the Middle East and repurposing that for the Indo-Pacific. I think that serves two objectives. On the, on the, first, uh, on the, the first side of the ledger is the fact that um, it's, been, it's beyond time that the Alliance um, itself and Australia's contribution to the Alliance is made here in the Indo-Pacific, not on the other side of the Indian Ocean in the Middle East. Now, of course, there are many things that we are doing here, but still the balance of, of investments, of, of resources that go into sustaining long-going operations over there um, has been a problem. It's encouraging that the Defence Strategic Update argues that that will no longer be the case, or at least not the norm. Last year's Osman, however, though, which was not that long ago, was scuttled over in part, or at least was a was a was a was a was a hard negotiation in part over whether or not Australia would take part in another um, a maritime. Um, patrol and aerial patrol in the Middle East in the context of US policy with regards to Iran. So the Pacific Deterrence Initiative focus would tether the alliance back here to our part of the world. And beyond that, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which, um, initi which began in Congress and has, has been owned in, in part by Indo-PACOM and the committees on Capitol Hill, um, is about um, carving out um, actionable initiatives to, to foster greater partnerships and to and to enable greater effectiveness of the US military in supporting regional countries and being ready for sustaining regional deterrence here in the Indo-Pacific vis-a-vis um, other priorities. I think that would be a, uh, an initiative which would find great advantage from being um, coordinated with Australia and Japan and others at the very earliest stages, which would be later this year. Go ahead, Brendan, thanks. Thanks, Gordon. I'm actually going to pivot to one of our other recommendations and not from the defense industry, um, just to raise awareness of it. But we talk a lot about um, in one of our recommendations, building digital capacity in the Pacific and Southeast Asia as, uh, as a kind of a, a complementary aspect of what Tilly, uh, Tilly's work has been about, about building other resilience. But, you know, uh, I'd like to highlight one part in there, which is um, building the capacity of Southeast Asian nations and their standard setting bodies, which I think is actually critical. Southeast Asia uh, is going to be huge digital markets in the future and huge digital actors in themselves. Uh, and obviously standards, which are the kind of rules and norms that 
industry sets to make sure that all of our technology is able to work with each other um, is obviously uh, hugely important to setting um, the kind of marketplace for a lot of future digital technologies and commerce that will take place between Australia and, and those countries as well as between the United States. And uh, obviously China has been, um, and we released a paper about this uh, late last year, uh, setting, uh, taking a very state-centric approach to those standard-setting bodies, which have usually been fairly industry-led and very technical in nature. So building the capacity of some of these other countries who will be huge digital and internet powers, um, broadly speaking, in themselves, to be able to weigh in and have the technical expertise to contribute to some of those standard settings bodies, I think is going to be really important going into the future. Very good. Thank you. Tilly? Great. Um, well, yeah, just based on my previous comments, I think I'd like to see a statement that really underscores um, the value of, of health and development assistance. Um, I'll make the note that the US has kind of been the largest contributor to global health security and humanitarian assistance for kind of the past 50 years and has taken a really active role in responding to previous infectious disease outbreaks and, and other kind of health issues around the world. I'm thinking back to the Ebola outbreak, um, HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, all that kind of thing. But I think in, in terms of America's kind of domestic response to COVID-19, that, that role has kind of come into question. So a kind of strong restating of the value of America's kind of global role in, in health and development assistance. And then just secondly, I'd also like to see a kind of recommitment to deliver pre-existing initiatives that have been announced between the US and Australia that haven't really seen that much momentum. Um, you know, I, I mentioned kind of development financing capabilities being strengthened in recent years, um, but the US and Australia, along with Japan, have a trilateral partnership for infrastructure investment in the Indo-Pacific. And they've also come out with the Blue Dot Network, which is supposed to certify kind of high quality infrastructure investments. Um, momentum on these initiatives has kind of been a little bit disappointing. So I think maybe instead of announcing new things, recommitting to delivering pre-existing initiatives would, would be a good step as well. On a personal level, I think uh, given the fact that we're just about a hundred days out from the US election, it's gonna be really interesting to see how many of those kind of longstanding things have legs and how much, how much those types of issues are just going to have to wait until the next Osman in terms of that process. All right, we've got about 10 minutes and, and five excellent questions, which I'm going to try to work my way through and direct them as they come. And they're, they're quite diverse, both in terms of topics and geographically. The first comes from uh, Paul Chamberlain uh, from the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, he asks, and this is probably for you, Ash, uh, do you think the muscularity of the recent Australian Defence Strategic Update will guarantee a warm welcome in D.C.? And to what extent can we expect to see more joint maritime deployments, exercises, cooperation between the US, Australia, and potentially other regional partners? So you've addressed that a little bit, but why don't we focus on the, the response to the Defense Strategic Update? Thanks, Gordon. Paul, good to see you. Oh, glad that you can see me. Um, thanks for attending today. Uh, I think that it will certainly it has been well received in Washington. I, I mean, uh, from conversations I've had with friends on the other side of the Pacific, uh, the Defence Strategic Update has been viewed as a serious document, one that is um, 
not only I think has been misreported as, as being an Australian shift towards isolation and self-reliance, when in fact what it really is is our answer to the national defence strategy and a way of Australia taking a greater and more active role as a security provider in the near um, part of the Indo-Pacific to Australia, as well as becoming more prepared for high-end deterrence objectives uh, further afield in support of shared regional interests. So yes, I think, to, to, to put the answer very simply, I think that that will um, uh, mean that the, the, the tone and the tenor of discussions between defence ministers this year um, will be um, very warm. Um, having said that, the, to, to the extent that there has been some pushback on the document that, that I've picked up on on the US side, uh, it has come as a result of the fact that the document maybe didn't go far enough in calling out China. Gordon, this is probably a very brief segue to Bruce Woolpey's question as well. Uh, but I think there that, you know, the, the tone and the way that the Alliance can talk about China and name it is going to differ um, for the foreseeable future, because at the end of the day, Australia isn't a superpower as the United States is. And for, region, for reasons of aligning our uh, declaratory policy uh, uh, with regional perceptions, we won't necessarily speak about and phrase um, uh, official statements about China in the same way as Washington will. So that, that is indeed a very good segue. Uh, the United States Studies Center's own Bruce Wolpe, who's done tremendous work on, on U.S. politics in recent uh, years. Um, he asked, you know, given the fact that it's very likely that there's going to be a strident statement on China coming out of Osman from the U.S. side, at least, you know, how should the Australian ministers take into account upcoming U.S. elections as they work out the words of that joint statement? Um, and I would just kind of add my own kind of two cents to that. Uh, if you look at Secretary Pompeo in particular, um, uh, um, there has been a, a, in addition to a, a geostrategic shift, there's also been a, a highly political, politicized shift in terms of how the U.S. talks about China, much less so with uh, Secretary Esper. Uh, I think uh, Ash earlier mentioned uh, the tone and tenor of his remarks yesterday uh, for IISS in the kind of uh, alternate kind of Shangri-La was a little bit different than one might have expected. But I, I would open it up for the full panel. Um, this is a more sensitive topic. How, how should Australia take into account the upcoming U.S. election and those sensitivities in that regard? Um, Ash, you've already started on that. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, Brendan, either of you have something you want to add on that? Um, I think there is a risk here that Australia ends up conflating a number of uh, issues with respect to China into the alliance structure. Um, as Ash mentioned at the start of his comments, there is a, a groomed belief in Chinese foreign policy circles that Australian foreign policy decisions are dictated by the US and the alliance relationship, which is not true, but is very hard to dissuade Chinese interlocutors and decision makers of for some time. And Australia has been very cautious in approaching issues regarding Hong Kong or visas or trade sanctioning as being based on those issues and based on an Australian position with respect to those issues. Um, when there would be pressures for Australia to contribute to a strongly worded statement from the US out of Osmin on this, um, the challenge that poses then for Australia's relationship of its uh, management of its China relationship is it simply provides public confirmation to a, a what I would argue is a faulty Chinese view that Australia is some 
lapdog or roadster or toady or something in the United States. So it will be given, uh, uh, Bruce, as your comment points out, that the election means there'll be a high appetite on the US side for something pretty hawkish to be said. That's going to be very challenging for Australia because playing along with that to then poses a longer term question about how, uh, how you undermine your position with respect to the trade dispute at Hong Kong or something else like that. Brendan? Yeah, I'll just jump in here real quick. Gordon, you were in some of your previous comments about Osmond's statements reminded me of something um, uh, we've talked about internally before as well, which is, you know, during the Obama years, you had a series of Osmond statements that were quite global in nature, as you kind of mentioned. We're looking at global health security, space cooperation, um, climate change. There was a long text about those sort of issues. And obviously under the Trump administration, it's become much more narrow. Um, around kind of more national security issues, uh, more regional ones and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's funny, I've been included in sort of calling for the alliance to become much more regionally focused um, rather than, you know, looking at, let's say, terrorism issues in the Middle East and things like that. And what happens kind of one of the downsides of that is it gives you less space to hide um, as a partner who may want to balance between a coming election and uh, actors who are, as you say, very political and trying to, to trying to score political points or trying to make political points through these alliance statements. If you're if you want that, you know, the alliance to be focused on the region, it just gives you a little less room because you're, you know, there's only so many things that you can kind of focus on and talk about. So within the region, and there's some of them are quite clear. So um, that is one of the downsides. And you know, I think you I think you almost um, answered the question yourself, Gordon, is that you you also have to play to some of the actors in the room, perhaps that you you pay attention to what Secretary Esper is saying versus uh, Secretary Pompeo, and you try to um, try to form the uh, statement much more around those kind of um, ideals and what Secretary Esper has been saying versus um, Pompeo. So, you know, I think you, you're, yeah, you don't also know how the next administration uh, in whatever form um, is going to take it. So you have to, you know, play fairly safe. So we've just got about two or three minutes left. There's some really good questions here that I want to acknowledge. Uh, uh, two live from the Diplomatic Academy of Vietnam has a question for Ash about the longer term trajectory for US-China relations. I would, uh, I would uh, suggest that Ash kind of get back to him on that separately. Likewise, Zach Hosford uh, from the German Marshall Fund Asia program uh, has some more specific uh, questions for Ash in terms of exactly how uh, the U.S. and Australia together in cooperation with other countries when the ASEAN might carry out some of the things they recommended. But I wanted to kind of wrap up and start by bringing Tilly back into a question from Tom Corbin from the Pacific Forum in Hawaii. Tom asks, he says, are there specific areas where um, the, where did I get that there last there, um, where Australia is better placed to provide assistance to regional partners in defense, health, infrastructure, uh, than the United States or other partners like Japan. So it's kind of putting Australia in the right context. And we'll start with you, Tilly. Well, I'll get some final comments from the rest of the panel on that and then we'll wrap up. So. Yeah, great. I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think what Australia can bring that maybe the US isn't as strong in is our relationships um, in the Pacific, particularly. I know that States has been making efforts um, with its specific pledge to increase its diplomatic presence and build relationships. But I think that's as that is building up over time, that's where Australia really has the advantage in terms of our pre existing relationships 
um, in the Pacific. So, yeah. Thank you. And we're going to keep our answers relatively short here because we're right on time. So, Brendan, anything that you think where Australia is particularly well placed? Yeah, I, I think I'll just echo Tilly's comments very briefly. I think in the Pacific um, is where a lot of our advantages come into play in terms of the alliance and uh, not only in re focus of our resources, but also of our uh, specialist knowledge in those, in, in those areas. So I think that's definitely the area we should be concentrating on. Dr. Wilson. Um, I think an advantage that Australia has in uh, cooperating with regional partners on this is that, you know, Australia has come out of this period of upheaval for the last six months in the world as one of the world's best performing countries, not just in terms of the public health response to coronavirus, um, but confidence and trust in public institutions, which is not something many countries around the world, indeed the United States at the moment, is able to say. Um, so Australia has a serious uh, credibility relative uh, comparative advantage at the moment in terms of that. Um, and I think um, rather uh, that Australia actually is able to offer that as a leadership role, which is, could be a force multiplier for efforts by the United States, Japan, other partners, Indonesia and India, where that's appropriate as well. Thank you. Ash, we'll give you the final word before we wrap up. Thanks, Gordon. Look, look building on, on Jeff's point, I think it, not just in the COVID-19 um, uh, recovery and response here in Australia, but more broadly, I think it's clear that Australia, uh, along with Japan, have been the countries that have probably been at the forefront of, of regional leadership over the last few years as countries that are present here in the region that experience many of the same tensions in our relationship with China as regional countries do. Sure, Australia doesn't have territorial disputes in the same way, but we're exposed in terms of trade, geopolitics, political interference, etc., in, in similar ways. Uh, and, and I think to that extent, uh, to the extent that we are exposed in similar ways, but also are perceived um, to have, if you like, good international officers, a reputation for shaping and leading the multilateral order and have invested in that recently and in a long-standing way. That is a, a particular asymmetric advantage of us in this. Well, thank you all. Uh, there are a number of questions we didn't quite get to, uh, but again, uh, this is an extremely timely report. The report is titled Bolstering Resilience in the Indo-Pacific. Policy Options for Osman After COVID-19. Uh, it can be found on the United States Study Center website, or you can just Google USSC or any of the authors and you'll be able to find it that way. Um, um, I, I would like to thank each and every one of our panelists, not only for writing the report, uh, and, uh, uh, but for, for sharing your insights on it today. Uh, on behalf of the United States Study Center and the Perth US Asia Center, thank the audience for joining with us today. Uh, you will all see on your screen right now uh, information about an upcoming event for the United States Studies Center. That is this Friday, the 24th of July, uh, on the 15th anniversary of the signing of the U.S.-Australia Free Trade Agreement, a remarkable panel put together by USSC with former Prime Minister John Howard, uh, the current ambassador to the United States, Arthur Sinodinas, uh, former Ambassador Joe Hockey, former U.S. Trade Representative Bob Zellick, former acting U.S. Trade Representative Wendy Cutler, and former Ambassador Michael Foley. So, um, an exciting event. We hope you will all be able to join us for that on Friday as well. Uh, and on behalf of, uh, of us all, thank you for, for joining for this very interesting discussion.